Philippians 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful. But ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Brief thought tonight. Learning contentment. Leo Tolstoy has a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it tells a story of a peasant named Pahom. Pahom had become a man of property, but the little bit of property he got just inflamed his desire to have more property. And so he wanted more. And through a series of quote-unquote chance meetings with another peasant and then with a traveling merchant, he learned of vast lands that could be obtained for very cheap in a very distant land. So he traveled to this distant land. And it was beautiful. It's virgin soil, as flat as the palm of your hand, as black as the seed of poppy, with grasses chest high. I mean, it was amazing land. And he spoke to the chief that oversaw this land, that had the land, quote, unquote, for sale. And he said, how much will this land be? Well, our price is always the same, 1,000 rubles a day. Pahom didn't understand. A day? What kind of measure is that for land? How many acres would that be? He said, well, we don't know how to reckon it out, so we sell it by the day. As much as you can go round on your feet in a day is yours, and the price is 1,000 rubles a day. Pahom was surprised. But in a day, you can get around a large tract of land. The chief laughed. It'll be all yours, he said. But there's one condition. If you don't return on the same day to the spot whence you started, your money will be lost. That night, Pahom couldn't sleep. He was so excited, dreaming of how much land he could get around in one day. Just before morning, he finally drifted off into half-sleep And began to dream. And he was in a tent. And he heard laughing outside. He went out and he saw that chief laughing. And holding his sides just laughing. And he went closer and it wasn't the chief. It was that traveling merchant who had told him of the chief. And as he got closer it wasn't the traveling merchant. It was the peasant who had told him of the traveling merchant. And as he got very close. He saw it was the devil himself. Laughing. And there before the devil on the ground lay a man, barefoot, with only his shirt and his trousers, and he was dead. What kind of man was this? He peeked to see, and it was himself. Well, he awakes from his dream, and he goes off to claim his land. He places the thousand rubles before the chief in a cap that the chief had placed on the ground, and he began to walk, not too slow and not too quick, so that he could pace himself as he went out to claim what was his. He picked up his pace as he got going. The land got better and better. He saw this one field that looked especially good, and he went out of his way to get it, and in doing so, he put himself kind of behind the eight ball, where now it was very hard to get back. As the sun beat down on him, he tried to hurry back. Exhausted after circling such a huge tract of land, he made his final turn to the starting hill. His chest was heaving. His legs were burning. The heart was beating. 
Paul looked at the sun which had reached the earth. One side of it had already disappeared. With all his remaining strength, he pressed on, bending his body forward so that his legs could hardly follow fast enough to keep him from falling. Just as he reached the hill, it suddenly grew dark. He looked up. The sun had already set. He gave a cry. All my labor has been in vain, he thought. He was about to stop, but he heard the chief and his clan still shouting and remembered that though to him from below the sun seemed to have set, that on the hill they could still see the sun. He took a long breath and ran up the hill, and it was still light there. He reached the top and saw the cap there before the chief with the rubles, and there before it sat the chief laughing and holding his sides. Again, Pahom remembered his dream, and he uttered a cry. His legs gave way beneath him. He fell forward and reached the cap with his hands just before the sunset. His servant picked up a spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it. How much land does a man need? Turns out six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. This story is so powerful because it reminds us of this plague, this disease that plagues all of us, and it's this disease of discontent, covetousness. Disease is the soul of humanity. We're a nation of discontent. We're a people of discontent. You turn on any news channel, you'll see the discontent of our people with our society, with our politicians, with our economy, with our political leaders. You watch any channel for long, and it won't take you long to be overwhelmed by the advertisements that are all built on one basic premise. Your life stinks. Try our product for a better life. A better life for you if you'll just use our shampoo, right? Or something like that. I'm a poet and didn't know it. It's getting real in here. So they just want to make you discontent. You know what's keeping you from happiness? You need a lower rate on your mortgage. You know that? (laughs) You'd be happier if you had a lower rate on your mortgage or you had better rates for your insurance or you had a nicer car, a newer car. Some of you car dealers in here, don't crucify me on that one. Everybody does need a newer car. And see our car dealers after the service. Maybe it's your clothes aren't nice enough. And it's working. The average household credit card debt is over $16,000 and it would take nearly 14 years for the typical indebted household to pay off its existing credit card debt costing them, if they took the whole 14 years to pay it off, something like $40,000. And that's, by the way, if they don't spend one more dollar on their credit card. The households in the worst financial shape have the highest debt. Hmm. And then enter Paul, sitting in a prison, by the way, saying, guess what, guys? I've learned how to be content. What did he learn? Well, let me just point out three things quickly. First of all, you're not naturally content. He says in verse 11, I have learned. He says in verse 12, I have instructed. Here's the reason that I did so poorly on typing, Miss Corbett, is because it doesn't come natural. Who laid out that keyboard? It's craziness. It's not right. In fact, they've come up with a keyboard that's much more natural to use. You have to relearn. I mean, that's kind of crazy in itself. But it's like it makes you go too fast and your fingers start to burn. I don't know. It's something crazy like that. But... They made it 
particularly hard and difficult, and it was hard and difficult, and I had to learn it. Learning is hard. Learning is a teacher telling you all the things you don't know, and that you're a sorry dog because you don't know them, and then you work and strive to know them. The point is, Paul, when he says, and when he uses that terminology, he's just reminding us this is not natural. But it is commended in Scripture. Think of Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But not only is it commended, it's commanded. How about this? In verse 7, he goes on and says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. That's more of a command. Hebrews 13, 5, Let your lifestyle, your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Remember that. It's, what's your answer to contentment? Remember Christ. We'll come back to that in just a minute. By the way, when we're talking contentment, I know I'm talking to a lot of A-plus personalities, a lot of successful people. And like, man, content people, they sit on the sidelines and cheer on all the people who get it done. Look, Paul got it done. Paul wrote half the New Testament. Paul started churches all over the known world. Paul is the seminal figure in everything, the second half of Acts, on. And he was content. Contentment is not complacency. Not we sit back and hang on till Jesus comes. But I'm telling you, contentment has to do. If you don't get this settled in your heart, Satan will use it as a tool against you. It will be his greatest ally in keeping you ineffective for the cause of Christ, in keeping you on the sidelines of the cause of Christ, in keeping you from enjoying and experiencing the blessings of full surrender to him. And knowing what it's like to live in the will of God, contentment is commanded, but it's not natural. Many of us are cursed with this grass is greener mentality where we think we can be content with what we have if we could only get what we want. A devout Quaker was watching his new neighbor move in next door, and he saw him taking in all kinds of modern appliances, electronic gadgets, plush furniture, costly wall hangings that had been carried in. And he called out to him and said, Neighbor, if you find you're lacking anything, just let me know and I'll show you how to live without it. What do you have that you can't live without? What do you think you need that is driving your life that you think you can't live without? This is why we have the command, the number 10 commandment, do not covet. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Contentment, covetousness. They stand in opposition to each other. Back then, if you wanted your neighbor's cars or toys or wife, you had to go steal it. Now if you want your neighbor's cars or toys, you just go put it on your credit card. We have access to things. And look, we spend money we don't have to impress people we don't even know or like. How crazy is that? Or maybe it's because we think we'll just be somebody. The Ten Commandments are interesting because the Tenth Commandment is like, I think Keller calls it the psychological version of the First Commandment applied. First Commandment is no other gods before me. You want to apply that to your heart and mind? Don't covet. That's where gods show up in your life and my life. It's when we covet them and make them an idol. You're not naturally content. Second thing he points out is your contentment should not be based on your circumstances. We think 
What's holding us back from contentment is because we don't have that or we don't have that position or we don't have that car or we don't have that bank account number. And that's a lie. That's a lie of the devil. We think if we had more, we'd be satisfied. There's a story about a pilot who always looked down as he flew over this certain valley in the Appalachians when his plane would pass overhead. One day his co-pilot asked, what's so interesting about that spot? He replied, see that stream? When I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. Every time an airplane flew overhead, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now I look down and wish I were fishing. Isn't that how it goes? It's always tempting to think that others have it better than we do and that if we had just a little bit more, if we just had that certain thing, everything would be fine but contentment can't be found or achieved. It can only be learned, is what Paul says. And it's not based on your circumstances. Paul says, in whatsoever state I am, I've learned to be content. I can abound, and he had a history of abounding. When he was out working, he could make tents, and he could provide for himself. He didn't have to depend on anybody or anything. God had given him abilities, and he had honed his skills, and he could take care of business. Here he's sitting in a jail, and he's saying, look, I've abounded, I've been abased. You know what's steady through that? My contentment. Because my contentment isn't based on whether I'm abounding or being abased. It's something so much better than that. Most of us don't live in that extreme, and so we live in this murky middle, and we still fall prey to the lie. Rockefeller, who at the time was the richest man in the world, was asked, how much is enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. There's a research study done about Americans with household incomes of 25000 Household income of 25000 When they're asked, what would it take for you to live the American dream? You know what households of 25000 think? About 54000 You know what people who make 100000 think would be the American dream? To make about 192000 it's basically somewhere around double what you make right now. I don't know about you. I'm at the point in my life uh, where we've moved on, and, and, and um, I'm making about double, I guess, of, at least of what I started out with as a punk kid out of college. And I got less spending money than I've ever had. I don't know. Isn't that crazy? How, how is it that my kids have more spending money than me? How is that right, Meredith? It's not right. But I digress. The American dream usually lies twice the distance away. Here's the reality. When you reach that goal, the people who have reached it, and there's some who've achieved success in life, who've achieved financial independence, who want for nothing, you know what they find? find that it doesn't fill the void that they thought it would fill. Cynthia Heimel, an unredeemed columnist in the Village Voice, said, when, when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish and then giggles merrily as you suddenly want to kill yourself. There's a poem written by Edwin Arlington Robinson called Richard Corey. Some of you recognize that because 
it was turned into a song by Simon and Garfunkel. That was before the days where we couldn't listen to pop music, I think. Some of you know that. I'm joking. That was supposed to be funnier than it was, but it wasn't. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Everybody's like, what are you talking about? Listen to pop music now. I'm not going to play it, but let me quote a little bit of it. They say that Richard Corey owns half of this whole town when political connection, with political connections to spread wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child, he had everything a man could want. Power, grace, and style. And the chorus is, but I, I work in his factory. And I curse the life I'm living and I curse my poverty. And I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, Richard Corey. The, it goes on to say, the papers print his picture almost everywhere he goes. Richard Corey at the opera. Richard Corey at the show. And the rumors of his parties on his yacht. Surely he must be happy with everything he's got. Then the final verse says, He freely gave to charity. He had the common touch. They were grateful for his patronage, and they thanked him very much. So my mind was filled with wonder. When the evening headlines read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. The people who have found the greatest things in life. Your, your, the fact that your contentment, the fact that your deepest void in your life can't be filled with stuff gets exposed when you get it all or when you lose it all. And it shows you where your idols are. It shows you where your heart is. It shows you where your, the lie of your heart. I can't remember um, one of the re- authors I was reading uh, quoted somebody who talked about the lie of the heart. And when that lie of the heart is shattered, that somehow if you get your stuff, you'll be satisfied. When that life, when that's shattered, your whole world is shattered. Your contentment should not be based, because it can't be based on your circumstances. Because circumstances, I think there was a song that said, I haven't heard this song, but I heard somebody quote this song, country song. Something like, they say money can't buy you happiness, but it bought me a boat. <laughs> you know? Like, I like my boat. <laughs> I don't have a boat. But some of you have a boat. That's great. You think, I had somebody tell me one time, money can't buy you happiness, but it sure buy you a lot of fun. But it doesn't fill your heart. Benjamin Franklin said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. Final thing. You can have contentment in Christ. I love Philippians 4.13. And you know what? Half the world loves Philippians 4.13. Most ball players got it. Doesn't keep them from throwing their mouthpiece at a ref, I think, last night. But I digress on that as well. But you have this verse that a lot of people quote, but a lot of people don't quote it in context. You have Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. What does that mean? I believe I can fly. I'm just quoting songs tonight, just randomly. (laughs) Y'all remember that song, Space Jam? Oh, man. Look, I can believe I can fly. If I go jump off this building, you're going to see my belief means nothing. (laughs) Even if I have shoes on that say I can do all things through Christ. I'm getting pumped up just thinking about it right now. That's not what this verse is. This isn't about how awesome Christ can make you on the ball field or the basketball court. 
This isn't about how Christ is your genie in the bottle to make all your dreams come true. This is Paul saying at the conclusion of his statement about, look, I can do everything. I can be abound in Christ. I can be abased in Christ. I can suffer all things. I can enjoy all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is a core to my life that nothing can touch, that nothing can take away. That core is Christ. Do you have that core? Is that the core of your life? Man. Sometimes, look, and it's not just money that makes us discontent. Facebook makes us discontent. Am I the only one here? Facebook makes discontent. You know, I've talked to a few pastors lately and seen them at conferences or different things. I'm like, hey, brother, how's it going? I didn't know I was really asking them how it was going. You know what I'm saying? You know how that is where you're like, hey, how's it going? Well, let me tell you my life story and it's falling apart. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is not the Facebook version of you that I know. You know, I see you on Facebook and I thought everything is wonderful. And then you talk to them and everything is horrible. Man, If you figure that out, people put their best version of themselves that they dream of on Facebook. They take 5,500 pictures and put one because it's the right angle and the right picture. And that, they Photoshop. I mean, it's crazy. Stop letting others' portrayal of how great you think they have it or how great they want it to be taking your joy. Man, it's an eye-opener to me when I find myself bummed. Because I'm looking at Facebook. If you're going through that, then what do we do? What do we do? We think our discontent's a reflection of our circumstances when reality it's a reflection of our heart. So what do we do? We make Christ our life. You know what? We heard when I was a kid, and I love it, but let me, can I expand on it a little bit? We heard, give Jesus the first day of your week, the first hour of your day, the first... 20 to 50% of your paycheck, something like that. I don't know what it was. That's what we push at Cramerton. Is that what y'all push here? That's where real joy is found. Amen? Trying to help you out, bro. Look, I think that's important, but that's important if that makes, if that lends itself to Christ being the center of your life. Christ isn't number one on a priority list. He's like the center of the wheel of my life. Everything grows out of that. Everything flows from that. And I can do all things through Christ. And I can have an identity that's not wavered by how awesome you make your vacation look. Or how great it looks for that boat that you have. Or that car that you have that I'll never afford. And all those things that I think would make me happy. And look, it doesn't just happen with you. It happens with us preachers. I see what CP's doing at Faith and everybody else and their brother, and it seems so great. And if I don't watch it, my identity gets into the fact that I'm the pastor of Cramerton Church, and I'm the pastor of a Christian school, and we've got this, and we're doing this, and we've got a missionary going off. And I, Before I know it, my identity isn't in Christ. My identity is in the stuff that I do or the stuff that our church does, and that's not even me. Man, Lord, help me to find my identity in you. That if all that were taken away tomorrow, would I still have joy in my soul? If not, then I've got a problem. And when you have those little moments where you get bummed out, here's what I did. Here's what you have to do. You have to preach to yourself. You have to preach to yourself. I've been there, so I'm I'm preaching from experience from about a month ago, 
And I told my church about that. I mean, it's, I'm not proud of it. But I get bummed because of something stupid I see, something I wasn't invited to, something somebody's got, whatever it is, and I'm bummed about it. I have to sit there and say, Josh, where's your identity? Who am I? I am the pastor of Cramerton. That's what I want to say. I am the husband of Christy. I am the parents of Meredith and Madison Jackson. I am a child of God. And I think that's what he's saying right here. Your identity, your joy, your peace, your contentment is in Christ. How can we do that? Keller had a good idea, Tim Keller. He said, expose the idol of your heart. Expose the idols. Preach the gospel to yourself. You're not valuable to God because of who you are. Sometimes we get the idea, um, and I read this from a guy who has a church ten times bigger than our biggest churches and who's doing amazing things, it seems like. I'm sure it's just a Facebook version of himself. But that's what I'm telling myself. But he said, I can't remember what he said. No. (laughs) What did he say? I really digress there. That you preach the gospel to yourself. I can't remember what he said. I do know this, that we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. That we have to find our identity in him. I know what he said. He said, he spent a long time thinking, God, you're pretty lucky to have me on your team. Aren't you? We know who the MVP is in North Carolina. Free Will Baptist. Whatever, whatever it is in your Sunday school, in your church, in your school, whatever. Man, that is, if you have that, that is a warning sign that is a red flag. You are not trusting Christ. You are not, your life is not Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is the center of my life. Preach the gospel to yourself. Put everything else in perspective. Look, icing is icing. Icing's nice, but don't eat your whole diet on icing. Realize that the blessings you have. We live in America, like the bottom 5% of America and the top 68% of the world. I mean, it's something crazy like that. We're, we're still in great shape here. Is this wrong to have? No, let's enjoy the blessings we have, but let's keep it in perspective. Let's not find our identity in it, and let's use our resources for the mission of God and the glory of God. And then find your power in Jesus Christ. Man, I wish I were there more than I am. But when I get those feelings of inadequacy, of inferiority, of, man, everybody's got it better than me. Oh, man, if I just had this, I'd be happy. Drawn back to this. God, help me remember it's not about that. It's about you. It's about my identity in you. My strength and my power to live this life and to do your will is you. So, Lord, I give myself to you. Where are you at? Let's pray together.